0: This is the Collector Car Podcast, the home for the auto enthusiast. Join Greg Stanley as he applies over 25 years of insights and analytical experience to the collector car market. He will interview the experts and throw in some fun stuff as well. Well, today we have a special guest, Pierre Haderi. Pierre, how are you doing today?
1: I'm great. And um, um, I'm happy to be here and sitting here in my shop with like 20 amazing Mercedes.
0: Well, that's perfect segue. Tell us what do you do in the automotive industry because I think it's pretty awesome.
1: Our main focus is to preserve and revive and basically provide technical services for classic Mercedes bins. So that means that if you've had a car that's been sitting for 30 years in your grandmother's garage or you just bought a car and you want somebody to go through it and make the car functional and reliable and preserve as much of the originality of the car as possible you would send it to us and then after sorting we basically provide on-site service support for our customers so basically when we when we sort a car out we're with that car for life it's our baby
0: yeah and if you would speak to that a little bit so i have a whatever a 230 sl that my grandfather gave to me or whatever it is it's been in the garage for 25 years just sitting there Tell me a little bit about what you would have to do to quote-unquote sort it.
1: Well, first of all, we'd have to figure out why it was parked in the first place. You know, Let's (laughs) say that somebody – a lot of these cars, believe it or not, were so well made that the cars were parked for a combination of small problems and usually not a big problem. But nonetheless, if the car has been sitting for 25 years, we have to make sure that the engine is not stuck and that there weren't any major problems with the transmission or rear axle or electrical system. Uh, If you can basically rule those out, then there are two paths. Let's say the engine turns, and you're able to gently revive it, and it has good compression. Then our next goal is to go through the fuel system and the ignition system and make any necessary adjustments to the engine, replace the water pump, thermostat, flush out the engine block, go through the radiator, and see if that sucker runs well. If it runs well, then we basically focus next on getting it drivable. So we're going to go through the brakes, the suspension, the electrical system, the rear axle, the transmission, whether it's automatic or manual, you know, perform any necessary fluid services or adjustments and get the car to be functional again. Now, if the engine is stuck, then we're going to pull the engine, send it to our really great machinist, Jim Dean, and uh, Jim's been rebuilding Mercedes engines for over 30 years now. He is—he would go through the motor. We'd yellow zinc plate everything that needs to be yellow zinc plated. And we would go through and begin the uh, begin the process of going through the other systems at the same time, like brakes and electrical and fuel tank and everything simultaneously. Once that's complete and the car's back on the road again and turning a wheel, then we start extensively test driving the car to look for additional problems, whether they're intermittent electrical problems or issues related to the transmission or, you know, as simple as rubber seals being rotted, we start going through the entire car systematically looking for and knocking out problem by problem. And we try not to leave anything to chance either, so... If we have an original electric fuel pump in that car, we'll we'll usually send them to a guy named Bob Youngman for uh, rebuilding his business. It's called MBZ Archaeology. Uh, And then we'll test drive the car extensively to make sure that that pump's not going to get hot and start acting up. Or, you know, ditto with the engines. Just because we get the engine running, we want to make sure we don't just ride it off then. We start driving and adjusting the mixture of the injection pump and making sure that the ignition timing holds after hours and hours of test driving. You know, we, we want to get everything as close to factory spec as we can. But if the car has original paint and original chrome and original interior, our job is to preserve and leave that stuff as it is. You know, whether it's a hose clamp or a seat cover or a carpet, our main interest is keeping that as it was without... You know, reupholstering the car or doing anything like that because the originality of the car is really its key asset. That's what makes it special, you know, and especially with the example you gave of the Pagoda SL, so many of those cars have been badly restored that having an original car with a good level of preservation is even more important today.
0: Yeah. Do you have an example of a car that just passed over the point of? preservation where it needed a restoration like i would imagine you hold off pretty far before you would go to hey we need to go to restoration route
1: we're finishing a beautiful 1970 silver on blue 280 sl Ooh, nice the car had been painted several times it had the nose cone replaced at one point in the past badly i might add we had to put a whole nose cone on it you know two new fenders we had to do extensive work on the upper firewall where like the air intake cowl is that car in particular had to have a total cosmetic restoration. It had variable chrome quality, and it had had extensive body work in the past, so why not? But at the same time, it has a really nice original blue leather interior, mm. and, you know, that's got to get taken care of. And then at the same time, there was so much corrosion on the ferrous parts in the engine bay that they all had to be removed, stripped, and plated. Not so much to look nice, which is a side effect, but so that they actually last – for another 30 or 40 years without developing corrosion issues that would render them useless.
0: Right, right, yeah. Okay,
1: no, that makes sense.
0: Well, how did you get into the uh, Mercedes world? What was the car that stoked all of this?
1: I don't know if it was a car. When I was growing up, my dad had a Mercedes repair shop in Fort Worth, Texas. And my dad's name was George. He was from Lebanon. He had been a flight engineer for Pan Am flying McDonnell Douglas DC 3s in, in Europe and Asia, and they were just not very good airplanes. And so he was really afraid of airplanes when he was done. An airplane is either retired or it crashes. And sometimes with, with old airplanes, you know, your luck runs out while you're in the air. So He started working on Mercedes, and he opened a shop, and when I was a kid, like three and four years old, I spent every minute in that shop with him. By the time I was a teenager, my dad had an injection pump shop, and we started doing a lot of Bosch injection, mostly on diesel engines, and I really came to love and admire Mercedes diesels because everything about them was built right, and so... When I was in college, I started servicing Mercedes diesels because I knew how to do it, and I, I just sort of fell in love with the cars. The dilemma I had when I was 21 is, I said, "Well, I can go to grad school or I can follow this." My dad told me, he "said Don't do this for a career. You're going to get, you're going to end up in a bad." position in life are going to hate the job. And I told my dad, I said, <laughs> great, I'm going to take your advice and do the exact opposite. <laughs> right. Even though my dad discouraged me repeatedly, he was always there for me until he passed away in 2009 when I was 24, when I needed somebody to bounce ideas off of because he was really a very good engineer. The aviation background had given him a lot to work with. Unfortunately, I have to say that My dad's idea of fixing something was to make it work short term and then hope it held together in the long term. My lesson I took away from that was you need to repair things that they stay repaired and that they're real repairs. In other words, once a repair is completed, it needs to be tested and analyzed at its limit. I have a psychology background. I have a profound love of testing and statistics and analysis. And when I saw the analysis of most repairs in classic Mercedes, I thought they were pretty bad. They were, they were just sort of done to a very low standard, unlike the standards of the people who built the cars in the first place. And I said, this is a calling. I can do better than, than most people at this. I can't. Not to say I was like an underachiever, but I was never really great at anything before I found this. And because there was no program or educational institution I could study with, I had to learn all of it by myself. So I basically started this business with $500 to my name in a barn in the woods. And I was working on people's Mercedes at like $30 an hour and spending, you know, five or six hours doing a one hour repair trying to figure out the inner workings of the cars right and eventually if you're listening to this and you're interested in a certain type of car and you're learning about it yourself eventually it does pay off
0: <laughs> right good it's good to know that
1: <laughs> it is yeah so don't don't give up just start young
0: <laughs> right right you put in all the blood sweat and tears and it's paying off well that's awesome well if you could only have one mercedes in your garage out of all of them ever built which one would it be?
1: Is this the alternative to my crush question because your crush keep or what is it again? Keep cash or crush. We'll, we'll get to that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I, can, I might plead the fifth on, on that if you were but um, that one car is a really tough question to answer, but I have to say for practicality's sake, like let's say I'm, I'm, this is my forever car. Yeah. I would probably pick Uh, a 1980 to 85 240 TD. It's a 123 Series. It's practical. I would have mine with a five-speed manual so that I'd have a nice overdrive and I could drive at 75 miles an hour if I needed to. And I know that no matter where I am in the world, I could easily maintain and repair that car. And of course, it's a 123 Series, which isn't just, in my opinion, the best Mercedes ever built. It's the best car ever built, ever, by a long shot. I would be pleased to have one of those cars, and that is actually what I drive today. I have a 300d Turbo, which I'm very proud of and very happy with.
0: Wow, that's a very specific and very nice answer. I like that.
1: Yep. I have, I have 11 Mercedes, and I picked the 123 Series as my 800-mile-a-week, rain or shine, go anywhere car. Right.
0: Okay. That's cool. Well, now tell us a little bit about your shop and where you're located.
1: I'm in Titus Hill, Florida, which is home to the Kennedy Space Center as well if you're familiar with that. And Titusville could be described as Mayberry with rockets. We (laughs) work in an old building that I bought a few years ago as a foreclosure. It's a 15,000 square foot concrete block, hurricane-proof military-esque bunker that houses our our operations. And um, we make sure that none of our customers' cars are left outside at night because that's a bad thing in Florida with the rain and the heat. Operations are basically really small. I have three helpers and um, we all work very hard. We all equally love these cars. I take a a forward role in the shop. You know, I don't just sit behind a computer desk and run the books. I'm out there working. We all work as a team and a group because when you have to do something like put in a subframe or rear axle, you need a team. Sometimes I'll look at photographs of Kinley. Kinley um, is a shop in Germany that does Really high-end restorations. I look at their team of 20 guys lifting the body off of a 300 SL. Right. And I, I just love the camaraderie, and I love the fact that we all sort of work as equals. They're all younger guys. I believe in training younger people to do this. I have one employee who's a little older than I am, but just a little bit. But I, I am a firm believer in training people to do this stuff or else it'll be lost yeah i totally agree
0: well i didn't know if you have a story of a barn find or a car that got away
1: my sister was really good at sleuthing for cars when she used to work with me in fact she was like a key point of me building my business she's an extremely smart girl Golinda wagon enthusiast um and um i really wanted a 450 slc 5.0 and so my sister and I knew that there was a car that had been on the 107 registry in Cocoa Beach, Florida for a long time, but we could never find the car. My sister heard a tip about an unusual Mercedes through a guy that owned like a store, a convenience store, who imparted the tip on her friend's husband, and her friend's husband told her friend Jane, and then Jane told her about it ultimately led to us recovering from somebody's backyard shed in Merritt Island in 1979, 450 SLC 5.0 Thistle Green on Brazil Weather, which is ours now, which has been sort of the, the subject of a, uh, of a defederalization and mechanical restoration. But the car had no rust, which is amazing for Florida. So right. it's really a very special beautiful car that i'm proud to own
0: oh that's awesome
1: it is and before i turn the key over i checked the timing chain the timing chain was about to go so i put a chain in it and that was a good idea i was able to buy this thing for fifty five hundred dollars you can't really easily acquire a five liter SLC right now
0: so they've gone up in the marketplace is what i'm hearing that's right wow okay well speaking of that can you talk a little bit to the market trends around mercedes that you're seeing
1: (sighs) okay well i'm going to try to make this quick
0: (laughs) i guess we should preface it that you write for sports car market as well
1: yeah there's a little i didn't tell tell you this because i don't i don't like to brag i like to be humble i like (laughs) humility Humility is the single most valuable trait that I aspire to. And I learned that from a really good customer of mine, founder of Laurence Marine Electronics, Daryl Laurence, who unfortunately passed away recently. But Daryl was like a shining example of humility. He accomplished so much in his life, and he always told me, Pierre, be humble.
0: I'll pull it out of you.
1: <laughs> yeah, think You know, there are a lot of different trends in the Mercedes market. The Mercedes market is so diverse. Uh, I can really only talk about you know three or four models that are showing a lot of appreciation first of all the cars that people really focus on a lot are like the w198 300sl coupe and roadster i love those cars i do my best to understand them mechanically but i think that they're basically stuck in at around the million dollar bracket when you have a million dollar car and it loses 200 or gains 200,000 dollars or something like that it's really not a big deal unless you're flipping the car then it's a big deal because you could probably lose your house. But the cars where we're seeing a huge change in the value perception are 126s, particularly really nice 126 gas and diesel sedans. Astoundingly with cars like the 420 SEL, which I thought never would be valuable, and the 560 SEL, which people didn't appreciate for the longest time. We're seeing a lot of upward movement with really nice 123 series cars, particularly the station wagons. I would caution anybody who's looking at a 123 wagon to bet the car first and don't overpay for it. If you see one of those things online on bring a trailer or whatever, the reason the car is for sale is because somebody is trying to make a profit selling it. At the same time, if you sleuth hard enough, you can find a nice 123 wagon for five to $7,000. You know, 123 turbo sedans and coupes are also doing really well. Maybe not quite as prolifically as the wagons, but I get a lot of people through my YouTube channel asking me about these cars. Uh, for a while, 560 SLs are bringing some attention. I think they're cooling off now. Again, they're, they're not quite – I always compare this stuff to locks and a canal. You have a boat and a canal lock. Water floods the lock and brings the boat up, the the floodgates open, and all the water and the boat flood into the next higher lock level, and the water level's elevated for a little bit, and then it comes back down, but you're still at a higher level. And that's how the market works for a lot of classic cars, and Mercedes are no exception. Pagoda SLs have cooled off, too. If you're looking at a Pagoda SL and you're paying more than $75,000 for the car, you're paying too much. There are some really great cars out there for 55, dollars $70,000. Even if you have to do some restoration work, the truth is that most restored 113s on the market need some work, a lot of work. People have shown up with $100,000 cars here and $50,000 cars here. I basically write the same invoices for each car. 108 and 109 cars are getting a lot of attention. I see a lot of people looking at 6.3s and 280 SE 4.5s because they're great cars. I don't see a lot of upward movement in in the market for early 107s like I thought I would, like 450 SLs and SLCs. But I think that really good original examples hold their own in the marketplace extremely well. If I were to pick some cars that I think are going to have a positive future, I think that 123s and really nice 115s, and I mean really nice as in rust-free, accident-free, running and functional 115, 114 cars are are probably going to start to get some attention in the near future, Uh, as well as uh, examples of the W110 and 111 fin cars. I think those cars are on an upward upward trend. I think that really nice six-cylinder 124 series cars are going to start to have some prolific sales in the near future as well simply because people understand they were the last really good mercedes made
0: okay you just teed me up my next question i was worried how will i ask this question but you just said it the last really good mercedes made was what
1: probably the 124 but you could also argue for the w463 galindo wagon a lot of people out there seem to think that the 140 and 129 fit this bill but actually those cars were built to a price Their interiors turn to garbage. Their electronics are basically insurmountable. Like if you have a 140 with rotting body harnesses, you're in trouble because the car virtually becomes undiagnosable. The 129, I think, was built to a price and is really too complicated to maintain. There are people out there that try to apply these terms to the 129 and 140. But anytime you have a car that is dependent on a computer to run, You're basically in trouble. The last Mercedes that I would want to own is the 95 E300 diesel. That's it.
0: 1995. I was, was, me being a lame. You were looking for a year. (laughs) Yeah.
1: 95 E300 diesel, or maybe possibly like a 1996 or 97 G320 with the um, M104 engine or, or a diesel version of of the of the galinda wagon
0: now what was the reason
1: for the big change the real problem at mercedes was they tried to go for these super efficient eco-friendly design traits like wiring harnesses that fell apart interiors that just crumbled in the sun because they had a high biodegradability component Mm -hmm. cars that were excessively computerized because they were trying to improve the driver experience using a cheaper method it is always cheaper to build a computerized system than an analog system that does the same thing and if you look at examples like the w109 series that had air suspension and the w140 series like the s600 in particular which had fully hydraulic suspension there was a higher electronic component to the s600 suspension sure it's a little bit better but it's almost impossible to repair whereas the w109 there's like a a step-by-step process you can follow and you can fix any air suspension system on those things and is the ride quality that much better I think the 109 drives and rides better because you were riding on heavy steel components that were engineered and machined to a very high standard.
0: No, that's great. That's a very thorough answer. I appreciate that because I've always heard that and I never got an explanation as far as, you know, why was there such a transition in that model year?
1: Well, I, I, if I were to put it in a statement, Greg, I'd say that all the best Mercedes were engineered before 1990. Wow. Okay. If it came out, if it was introduced after 1990, there are going to be inherent problems that I... I think just make the car sort of, you know, ownership experience lackluster. And um, anybody who argues that with me has not worked on the cars extensively enough to be able to say that. Right.
0: Yep. Take it from a pro. Now it's time to play my fun game called Keep, Cash, or Crush. Okay. So I've picked out three cars from you. My goal is to make it as hard as possible.
1: Yeah, I know.
0: (laughs) All right. So I'm going to give you three cars. All right. The first one is your 300SL, but... It's totally wrecked, no engine, transmission, drivetrain. Like it's a gutted. Yeah, it's a shell. It's a shell. Ro- Cooper Roadster. I'll say Coop, the gold. Okay, wing. great. All right. Oh, that made it easier on you. Darn it. Okay. Yeah. Then I would say a Mint 230SL and then a driver grade 6.3 sedan.
1: I would have to say that the. The keep is the driver grade 6.3 because I love that car. There's nothing you can't do with the 6.3 except go on a fuel economy run. <laughs> I mean, okay. mechanically and structurally, the cars are just amazing. They do everything well. I used to have a driver grade 6.3 and it was an awful car, and I still loved it. I think the flip would be uh, the flip would be the 230 SL because. Uh, I I know that that car would be a a prime candidate for you know for somebody who wanted to get into a Pagoda and didn't want to pay 280 SL money, and then finally the 300 SL would probably be the crush, and and here's why. We don't know enough about the car, and there's there's probably a chance – I'm not saying that the economic value of restoration is important. In fact, it's totally unimportant to me because there's no such thing as a winning value proposition with a restoration. But I'd say that with the amount of money somebody would have to put into that 300SL to restore it would be probably about the same kind of effort you'd have to put into buying a decent car that had some murky history but was still a complete running, driving, functional car. So I'd crush right. the 300 SL.
0: Now, would you have changed your last two if it was a convertible? No, I wouldn't. I still okay
1: still do it because still I it. mean the 3 the 300 SL. <laughs> I'm not saying that it's a bad car. It's just overrated. I never opened my shop to necessarily work on those cars, although I do love them. And I, like I said, I love them. And if you're listening to this and you own a 300 SL, I do commit myself to understanding those cars thoroughly. I just don't get the soft spot in my heart for them like I would a nineteen sixty eight two twenty D. You know, right. if the keep, right. cash, or crush had been like a, a mint three hundred SL or a sixty eight two twenty D that needed a restoration, I'd still crush the three hundred S L because the intrinsic value of the other two cars you listed or really any other Mercedes is so much higher. And intrinsic value is my favorite topic of discussion with these cards, right okay
0: that's fair no i appreciate it that's great well cool well thanks for joining us today what's the best way for our listeners to learn more about you your business and your really awesome youtube channel
1: um if you go into youtube and you search for pierre Hidari, you'll find me pierre Hidari on and co.com is my website and if you really want to get a hold of me you can email me at at gmail.com or for life at and that's f-o-r not number four awesome thanks for your time today i really appreciate talking to you greg keep up the good work and we'll talk again in the future thanks
0: for listening to the collector car podcast don't forget to give us a nice rating on itunes and be sure to follow us on instagram and everywhere else at the collector car podcast